Tell us how you played a role in returning some of these illegal excavations had illegal acquisitions. It's legal or illegal according to the moment. Identity, national identity is a tool for peace. Some other times, national identity is a tool for war. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast, My Heritage, where we travel around to explore and uncover the beauty of World Heritage sites and dive into how the heritage have shaped the careers of our experts who devoted their lives to safeguarding heritage. Dr. Stefano Di Caro, welcome. We are very delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Professor, you have uh, devoted many of your life into working in the field of heritage. Yes. Could you tell us about it a bit and what is your relationship with cultural heritage? Oh, I worked uh, about 40 years in this field. I started with archaeology in the 50s, in the 70s. I graduated in classical archaeology in 72. Then I studied uh, Greek and Roman archaeology uh, in Rome and Athens. I graduated in Naples, then I moved to Rome and Athens for the specialization. Then I worked for the Italian Ministry of Culture in the archaeological superintendencies, which are dealing with the conservation, restoration, and excavations. And I worked in a region inland, Italy, in the mountains for a couple of years. Then I moved to Campania, which is my birth region. And I worked in the area of Pompeii for about more or less 10 years. Then I moved to a special office dealing with the restoration of the monuments affected by an earthquake. And it gave me some experience in the issues of conservation and restoration of monuments, not only archaeological, but also architecture and churches and so on, affected by the earthquakes which was a, a good experience because uh, as archaeologists, you know a part of the field, but not, not all. Then I moved to uh, the superintendence of Naples and Caserta. And this superintendence implies also the direction of the National Museum of Naples, which is one of the most important in Italy and all over the world, and which is famous because it contains all the artifacts, the most part of the artifacts from Pompeii, Herculaneum, and all the area of Campania, uh, more or less, uh, especially from Flegrean fields, for, from Capua, and so on. Then I moved to be the director for the region of Campania, all of the heritage, which implies also the archives and the libraries. So, uh, more or less, I had a comprehensive vision of all the heritage in my region. Then, and I had the most beautiful bureau office of the world <laughs> in the castle of the Egg in Naples. And it was my preferite office. I also always quote it because it's, it was a wonderful office. And also because 
when you are responsible for an entire region, not only uh, archaeology or architecture, but also libraries and archives, it gives a, a comprehensive vision of all heritage, including intangible heritage. Then I was moved to be uh, Director General of Archaeology, and I closed my career in the ministry as Director General for Archaeology. Then, uh, during this time, I was a member of the Council of ICROM, which was the office where, UNESCO, where Munir Bushnaki was serving at that time after his career in UNESCO. And uh, I participated uh, in this uh, ICROM activity, and I served uh, with my experience of the Italian administrative uh, procedures in helping ICROM to find an agreement, an official agreement, papers, how to say, bureaucracy. And it was useful. And so I think that the council, uh, when they elected me as successor of Professor Bushnaki, they, had, they considered not only my professional experience, but also the possibility of dealing with Italy through an Italian. <laughs> I was the first Italian elected in this organization as director general. And this was a very useful experience because I had before an idea of heritage limited to my region, which is a rich region, but it's not a world. Then in ICROM, through the council, I expanded my experience to all the problems that are considered by ICROM. Then as director general of ICROM, it was a fantastic moment because uh, you deal with UNESCO, you deal with all the activities that uh, ICROM are expect, is expected to do across the world. And so they had the opportunity to travel to new and uh, many other activities like conservation of archives, first risk management, uh, earthquake uh, uh, relief. Uh, so it was in a certain sense a continuation of my activity at home, but expanded to the level of the world, of the worldwide. It was a, a good moment. It was a, an interesting uh, completion of my career. It was, actually. And, Professor, during your remarkable experience, you have been asked a lot about why do we pre what is the importance of preserving cultural heritage? Uh, yes, they asked me, and uh, I had to develop this idea in front of different audiences. Sometimes you have a cultural institution who knows already about the importance, but they want to develop tourism, by instance. So they consider heritage from a certain economic point of view. In other times, in other occasions, you are in front of audiences of, of states, of uh, organizations, who consider the problem of restitution of artifacts illegally exported abroad. Other times you have a problem of identity. Uh, by instance, in many uh, modern states, the modern states were designed in, uh, after the colonial age, not considering very much the identity of the population. It was a, a division of powers, uh, like in Africa, when you consider the map of Africa, you see a lot of the <coughs> They were designed at Depol, not considering that 
this population speak a language, the other one is an, another language. So uh, identity of Uganda is not what was thought by the people who designed the map of Uganda. Identity of Uganda is the identity of the Uganda people. And these are the tribes speaking a certain language with a certain religion. And so the, even the political powers of these states is not the, the true responsible of heritage. Sometimes it's the king, the old king of Buganda, who is in really in charge of the traditions, of the language, and so on. So you have to match tradition, uh, identity, with, the, with what is now the political constituency. And uh, you have to adapt, in a certain sense, where the, the money or budget comes from, with what the population to which is destined is, really. And uh, it is not the same looking at a map, a political map, and looking at the real constituency of the peoples, of the population, of the religion, and so on. So it is not easy to say, to say what is the use. The use is changing according to different uh, needs of the population. Sometimes national identity is a tool for peace. Some other times, national identity is a tool for war. <laughs> so you must be clever using, yes. because it's often manipulated. Um, as you mentioned earlier, that these heritage sites, with all the pressure things that they have, of course, uh, it faces the issue of illegal uh, exporting the archaeological objects. Uh, tell us how you played a role in returning some of these illegal. Yes excavations that had illegal acquisitions? You see, I, I did this job in my career in the, when I was at the ministry. We negotiated with the United States, with the European countries, the restitution of some objects that were exported illegally abroad. Uh, but you see, the, in the history of archaeology or in the history of the trade of art, it was never, it was not always a fault of the people importing. In the sense that they imported things that were exported legally. Uh, I was just telling that the Naples market for antiquity was one of the main in my region. And the, it happened under the eyes of the government. Because in this time, before Italian unification, it was considered legal to export. The king considered property of the king and the property of the state paintings. The paintings of Pompeii were sacred in a certain sense. But Greek vases were considered objects for exportation. And so when you see that there is a Greek vase from Pestum somewhere in the United States or in Australia, you have to consider when it was brought, both. Sometimes it is uh, in the Bourbonic time, in the 19th century, sometimes it is recent. Then it's legal or illegal according to the moment, and according if, if the who has brought them has done what is in Ecom language, Ecom's language called the due diligence. 
if the museum which has bought this item has done a proper research how it has been sold and exported. It's a, a, a matter very complex. Uh, and I think that the uh, treaty, the Convention of 1970 of UNESCO, putting a date, 1970, this is the date for reclaiming illegally exported. Then there are, not legal, but uh, how to say, cultural and issues, by instance, just to, 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 to speak about something that is very crucial today, Elgin marbles, the marbles of the Acropolis of Athens, they were bought by the Lord Elgin in the Ottoman Empire. Greece at the time did not exist. And it was perfectly legal that the British ambassador in Athens both from the Turkey, marbles. Greece did not exist at the time. So, and they played a role, a cultural role, in the identity of the Greek people because Greek art was appreciated through the European look at the Greek marbles in London. It would be impossible uh, in Athens or in Naples or wherever else. In, in Athens, like in Paris, it existed a learned community who was able to appreciate the idea behind the marble. And it was also helpful because the independence of Greece was achieved a lot through the British guys who left United Kingdom to fight for the freedom of Greece. Now, from the point of view of, legal, of legality, the Greece cannot ask for the restitution according to the constitution of, of UNESCO. From another point of view, which is, uh, which is the right of a people who recognize themselves as continuation of the Greek people to ask for this. Of course, there is a, an issue, uh, like for many African countries, which are recent identity, recent in, independently, independent. How to can ask things exported legally, but through the violence of the colonization. Uh, it's a matter of, uh, how to say, goodwill. And um, unfortunately, it's also a matter of political ties. Um, France is considering today the possibility of restituting, of giving to some countries in the French-speaking area, Benin, Burkina Faso, items that were brought to Paris or the museum in Belgium, etc., etc., et under the French rule. It's important for the identity of this population, uh, but on the other point of view, we have to consider how much the soldiers of these African countries has done for France. In Second World War, 
the French army liberating France was composed by a lot of African soldiers. So there is, a, in a certain sense, a moral obligation of France to, uh, to the, 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 the people of Africa. So it's not only legal, it's also moral, political, and the, the Convention of 1970 uh, encouraged, respecting the date of 1970, but encouraged to have, how to say, uh, moral commitments to not restitution, because they were not, but to long-term loans, uh, to, so. Uh, the Pope gave a good move because it, they donated a piece, it's a small piece, it's more uh, of the Elgin marbles, of the marbles of Athens, back to, to Greece. And the Italy, which has a very strict legislation about state property, uh, considered a long-term term loan, uh, the restitution of another piece of the Acropolis to Greece, which was in one of the Palermo in Sicily collections. So it's something that is moving. Uh, you must be clever in policy, in the political issues, in the detective stories, because sometimes you have to check the, the tracks of these uh, items. Uh, if you consider Southeast Asia, what has been looted, if you consider Iraq, what has been looted, you have to, to follow the, the, the tracks on the antiquarian market. But also to consider the, police, the, the political issues, the moral ties, the historical ties between peoples. So it requires diplomacy and experience. Professor, talking about your career and heritage, uh, cannot go without talking about Pompeii. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Could you tell us a bit about it? Yes, you see, uh, I was born near Pompeii. It was uh, some, a kind of destiny, but uh, my, my natal, my birth home is about three kilometers from Pompeii. Nevertheless, I am the first archaeologist and the first uh, graduated in my family. At my time, uh, the people of my region considered Pompeii something only valid for tourists. Like in many countries of the world, uh, we are considering a, a job. It was uh, construction, engineers, and so on. And, uh, I was supposed to be a professor in classical language. I graduated in literature, Greek and Latin literature, and I was supposed to be a professor in Latin and Greek. Then I discovered archaeology very late because it was a, a nice place for having trips around Italy, visiting countries. It was a, a nice job, but I was not supposed to do. Consider that archaeology is not considered a job in Italy. There is, not the, the, there is a career of a professional in the ministry. You are a public servant. But as a private job, it doesn't exist. We are still struggling. Uh, I was the first one to establish 
the fee for paying the private archaeological job. I was hired in my first moment as a workman, specialized workman, but not as an archaeologist. Archeo uh, it exists for architects, because of, since a long time uh, they are considered, uh, but not archaeologists. My father and my mother, all my family, considered that this kind of job was for foreigners, uh, for tourists, but not for the professional, were mostly of northern Italy, central Italy, but very few people of my region studied archaeology. Also because it didn't pay. My, my family considered more uh, rentable to be a doctor or to be an engineer or something else. When they look at me coming back from the work site, dirty, from mad, from gyps, they thought, oh, you are a professor, how do you do <laughs> this workman? Then it was uh, with career, we were not so many at the time, we were a, a few bunch of people studying archaeology, and after the career, uh, they were more satisfied with my job. Uh, then, now Pompeii is a place for many, many people, uh, Italian and foreigners working there. Pompeii is famous because its first archaeological excavation where archaeology started in 1748, uh, 10 years after the discovery of Herculaneum, and is famous around the world because it's quoted by many uh, writers. Uh, the, main, the, main, the, many, the most famous of them is uh, Goethe, the German Wolfgang, uh, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, uh, who wrote the Italian, uh, the Re, Italian Reise, Italianische Reise, a travel through Italy. And this is a book that every German has read, and that's been translated in all the language of the world. So he describes Rome, Venice, and Naples. And he considered that the museum of the king of Naples was the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega of all the collections of antiquity. He was right because at the time, no collections had Roman painting. Pompeii, being under the, the soil, was conserving all the paintings of, of a city. They were not real masterwork, masterpieces of the painting. Because, as a, a Roman writer says, there is no glory in mural painting. The only glory is in, in painting on cloth or in table of wood not on mural, because the mural, a face decay, the, the, the table, the, the painting on uh, tissue, it lasts longly. But they were the copies, the replicas of famous painting of the uh, Greek masters. So you can find there uh, the reproduction of uh, Paintings quoted by the literary source. This is the famous Apelles. Uh, Apelles painted uh, fruit that the birds came to pick, looking at them as they were true raisin. 
And we have a lot of uh, uh, still life with grape uh, aiming to be identified as true bird. And so with this idea that the Pompeian painting was a replica of the Greek master of the Greek painting, uh, the collection of the Naples Museum and the, after the, the painting in situ in Pompeii became something that you cannot uh, miss when you visit Italy. And so, this is the reason why you have millions and millions of people looking after the Pompeii. And the other thing was that Pompeii uh, is stimulating something very crucial, which is the feeling of the death. When you see the bodies uh, in casted in Pompeii, you feel something emotional connected to the possibility of losing the life in a catastrophe. Now we, see, we have the television, we see, and we have the movies showing the effect of a tsunami or a volcano, and we see how many people is searching for this kind of spectacles. But we know that these are movies. There you look at real death, and this is something touching. Professor, definitely working in the excavations has its joyful moments. Uh, is there any remarkable thing that whenever I'm talking about excavation in Pompeii comes to your mind? Uh, I am not very lucky in the sense that uh, to, see, to be the director of Pompeii implies normally to be the head of more or less 500 people working as guards, electricians, all kinds of things, receiving people, speaking with journalists, and so on. So it's more an administrative job. I did my excavations in Pompeii, taking my holidays, <laughs> because it was impossible to do it in the, on the spot in the service. The director has to rule the day-per-day -day management. You can very rarely, you can visit other friends or people doing excavations. You can advise, but you have no time for doing yourself the excavation. Uh, I had the lucky to be on the spot in the real moment when you find something. Only when I, was a, when I visited my wife, she had an excavation. She found gold treasure. I told my wife, go and come to, to the guards. <laughs> I did the excavations, <laughs> but it was not in Pompeii. <laughs> that was amazing, Professor. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, that was an inspiring insight with Professor Stefano Di Caro. Thank you again, and we see you in another episode. Goodbye. <laughs>